Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Jacob Cohen Donnelly and this is a media operator. This show is a discussion about building media companies for current and prospective media operators. We discuss business models, products, subscriptions, advertising, commerce, everything to help you with your media business. You can learn more at amediaoperator.com. My guest this week is Brian Dolan, the founder and lead writer at Exits and Outcomes. During the roughly one hour of our talk, we discussed his background in media, building and selling his first media company, Moby Health News, and how he is doing things differently this time with Exits and Outcomes. I enjoyed this episode because Brian and I are in a similar stage with our newsletters, fast approaching that first year mark with paid subscriptions, and both share a similar appreciation for niche media. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brian. So Brian, when I saw John at Aging Media tweet that I needed to do a deep dive into what you had built, not just once, but now a second time, I knew I couldn't actually ignore his advice. So tell me, who are you? And how did you find your way to working in media? Great. Thanks, Jacob. It's great to be here. Uh, my name is Brian Dolan. I am the founder and lead writer of a subscription-only paid newsletter and market intel report site called Exits and Outcomes. And that's focused uh, in the digital health sector. You know, this, this is really, I think, I kind of think of it as sort of the third time around for me. Uh, I got my start out of school at a great little media company called Fierce Markets down in D.C., and um, a lot of what I've done in the meantime, that was, that was back in 2005. So really, these past 15 years, a lot of that's kind of been building on those first couple years at Fierce. And um, you know, they're still around. It's, it's a great company. I was probably employee number 12 there. And I think if, uh, if your listeners have been a part of a small team before or a company that's kind of sub-20 employees, you really get to learn quite a bit about how a business that size works uh, if you're there that early. So a lot of what I ended up doing was was based on the experience of Fierce Markets. And so after Fierce Markets, your big initiative was Moby Health News, which we'll abbreviate to just Moby because that's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> and then, so that was your first big play on going sort of on your own with media, right? That's right. Yeah, I had a brief stint at a um, market research and analyst firm called the Yankee Group. They actually recruited me from Fierce. Um, so that's that's what brought me up here to Boston. I'm in the Boston area. Um, so yeah, for about seven or eight months, I worked for the Yankee Group, and they were also focused on the mobile industry, which was the sector I covered at Fierce Markets. And so yeah, during that seven, eight-month period, I was really focused on kind of building big B2B, uh, multi-million dollar type you know, industry conferences and expos for them, focused on the emerging world of the mobile internet. So this was kind of pre-iPhone, but sort of what we call apps today, sort of um, the original apps that we were trying to make work on things like BlackBerry devices and kind of early smartphones. But it was really there, like towards the end of my time there, uh, the recession hit, you know, this was kind of mid to late 2008. And we were starting to plan our mobile internet world show for the following year. And the question that my boss posed to me was, what, how do we reposition this show for a down economy? Like what parts of the mobile industry are recession-proof or likely to still be interesting and growing in 2009. And so as part of that project, um, I sort of came up with a, a couple of different buckets. And the one that I was most excited about was this idea of kind of the mobile inter- industry intersecting with healthcare, so mobile health. Um, another one was, I think, what we call ed tech today, but it was kind of the same idea, like looking at education, technology. And then I believe the third thing that I came up with was kind of government-related 
But those were three areas that I thought in, in that recession would still be interesting and, and growing and, you know, had enough conviction in that, um, that I ended up leaving Yankee Group to start a media company focused on mobile health. And that was for a couple of reasons. One of them was they didn't really like the pitch. I think they thought it was probably a little too ambitious and the, you know, the, the niches that I had picked there were all a little bit too small for them to build events around that year, which I think, in, you know, in hindsight is, is absolutely true. But um, I also, yeah, I'm just, I, I think I learned big B2B media events really weren't for me. And I was, I was much more of a journalist. And so I was really excited to, to dig back in and become a writer again. So it's interesting because, you know, when you were launching Moby, you, you dove into a very niche, niche play. You know, I, I would never have even considered Moby, you know, mobile health and the intersection as something to do. Whereas the majority of people who were kind of getting a ton of press at the same time as you were all chasing aggressive scale plays. Mm-hmm. You know, they, you know, if you had, and I don't know what the traffic numbers were like at Moby Health, but I'm sure if you had, you know, a million people hit your site in a month, that would be an insane amount of people versus, you know, the, the Voxes and the Vices and the Buzzfeeds that were raising mm-hmm. tons of money. So when you started, you know, were you clear that this was always going to be a very focused play? And, mm-hmm. you know, did you have to pitch it to investors to get started? And how did that all work out? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, again, I think the the experience of Fierce Markets was was kind of key to that. That's what um, led me to to pick a, a true niche. I mean, this, you know, this wasn't just healthcare. This was really, we call it now digital health, but it was, you know, sort of looking at the digital transformation of healthcare, but in particular, the healthcare experience. So um, in some ways, it was kind of even a, a niche within a niche. So it was very small. Um, and back in 2008, it, it also was fairly non-existent. You know, we were super early. Um, there weren't really any events at all that were focused on this topic, maybe one or two. They all kind of used different terms. Um, again, this was right around the time the iPhone had come out, but the app store was kind of just coming out. And so a big part of what, what fueled digital health was, you know, health apps and and medical apps for various smartphones. Um, so anyway, you know, my, my experience at Fierce was, uh, in the telecom industry and I was for a couple of years anyway, kind of their go-to telecom editor for launching new publications and the Fierce model, um, was kind of to take their larger publications and start finding ways to splinter out verticals within them uh, to spin out as sort of a new weekly newsletter. And, you know, I've always been very newsletter focused. Even back when I started at Fierce, they didn't even have a website. Their website was just a sign-up page for the newsletter. So, you know, I think I learned very early on the importance of, of email newsletters as kind of the main driving vehicle for a B2B media company. And so, yeah, I mean, at one point at my peak, I think I was writing two dailies at Fierce and one weekly. So I was writing 11 issues a week. Um, and it was mostly a curation model. It, it did involve quite a bit of time on the phone talking to people every afternoon. But, um, you know, I, I just always had the mindset that the way to build a B2B media brand was to find a, an emerging niche and, you know, build the, the dominant media publication that everyone in that industry needed to read that day or that week. Yeah, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. And, you know, obviously, you and I are both newsletter writers. So we both kind of share a philosophy around, um, you know, that that direct to somebody's inbox strategy. Uh, it's much, 
it's much cleaner than chasing page views and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you started Moby, you know, I was looking, I was looking at your LinkedIn and kind of describing the various aspects of that. That was a, you know, a, a traditional looking media company. You had a website, you had mm-hmm. ads, you had events, you had webinars and all that. Like it was, it was a fully baked out. It wasn't just a newsletter, right? Right. Yeah. No, I, I think we just, we saw the newsletter and I still today see that as kind of the prime vehicle. So, you know, you write the newsletter and then to some extent you are publishing either what, what I do today is I publish the whole newsletter as sort of an article, but um, for both at Fierce and at Moby Health News, individual articles within the newsletter were published as separate blog posts on the, on the publication's website. So yeah, traditional in a lot of ways. I mean, Fierce, Fierce became that way while I was there, you know, I was part of the team that helped them create websites and start building out web traffic. Um, but it was always there for Moby Health News. And, you know, as you said, main revenue streams, both at Fierce and Moby were really, you know, various, uh, whether it's a newsletter-based marketing product or web-based marketing product, you know, all the ones that are fairly common as well as, yeah, online webinars. So we would do both sponsored webinars and editorial ones, which which had a sponsored component to them. Um, and, you know, I think in both instances at both companies, there was not as much of a focus on live events as I think there, there, there typically is in B2B media. Fierce did many more than we did at Moby Health News, but um, they were typically co-located events at larger shows. Um, at Moby Health News, prior to the acquisition, we, we never did a standalone event. They were always co-located um, and fairly infrequent, you know, just a couple of year, I think we, we did many more online events like webinars than, than in-person ones. Yeah. The whole virtual component is, is, is less risky from a fixed cost perspective and right. easier to scale up and, you know, all the, of that stuff. The first time you do a live event and you get the bill for the coffee uh, is enough to scare most people <laughs> away. I mean, it, it's amazing what the markup can be in some of these convention halls. So yeah, yeah I mean, business. I think it's, uh, I think it was Rafat Ali over at Skift who he wrote a piece about how the events business is going to change. And I've never met Rafat, but I think the glee he feels knowing that hotels will not be able to extort his business this year right. is, especially on like the food and beverage is just, it's, it's, it's so extreme. I mean, I've, I've done, I've done events in my full-time job and it's, it's, it's the, the costs are intense. Um, how long did you do Moby before the inevitable acquisition by uh, Hims Media? Well, I wouldn't say it was inevitable. You know, I, I think we um, it, it took seven years to get there, which I think was a, the right amount of time for you know. I had a co-founder. The two of us were equal founders, equal owners of the company, and we said at the beginning, you know, this is something we want to work on. We, we're hoping to get it acquired within you know five to seven years was kind of the time frame and. We ended up hitting that on the mark. It was just shy of seven years. So 2015, we were acquired. And you know, we were, we were acquired by what was at the time, and I think this may still be true, that the largest health IT media publisher, um, our biggest competitor, also acquired us. So we were acquired by a strategic. And um, yeah, you know, you know, I wouldn't say it's inevitable. I think there's a lot of media companies that, that don't make it. So you know, I'm really proud that we built it to a point where it was a product in a media business that somebody wanted to acquire, you know, that was certainly a high watermark for, for my career, especially leading up to that acquisition. Those were some great years. So, um, 
and yeah, Moby Health News continues on as a, as a part of Hims Media. And my old number two kind of managing editor is now running all of editorial at Hims Media. So, you know, there's definitely a, a little bit of a legacy there, which is great to see. And since the acquisition, Hims has also grown the footprint of Moby Health News. It, it was always a global publication with more of a U.S. focus. We're kind of 80-20 in terms of web visitors. 20% were from abroad. And Hims uh, Media is owned by sort of the big health IT association, which has a global footprint. And when they did a recent survey post-acquisition, they saw that of all the media brands that they owned, Moby Health News was the one with the biggest brand recognition worldwide. So they ended up really scaling that out. And they now have journalists in you know various parts of the world, in Europe and Asia. And so Moby Health News is really, I think, coming to its own as sort of a, a global publication covering digital health. And in a way that you know it wasn't with the limited resources we had as a, as a five, four or five person startup. That makes sense. Did Hims come to you or did you go to Hims to talk about this acquisition? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think um, it was sort of both, you know, there was, there was probably about three years leading up to the acquisition where every year a contingent of Hims executives on the media side would come to Boston because they were, they were based kind of all over, but they had a pretty big office up in Maine. So they would come down to Boston and take us out to lunch. And, you know, I think the first couple years that they were doing that, we, we got excited, you know, we thought, Oh, they're, they're looking to acquire us. Like, you know, this, this is really interesting. And I think at one of those lunches, they brought someone, um, from, you know, kind of a financial advisor type person. So making it abundantly clear. Um, and, you know, I think just chalking this up to inexperience, never having gone through this before, I think we kind of blew those early meetings. You know, we just didn't really didn't say the right things. We, we really kept up a facade, um, which, which was true that things were going really well. We were really happy with the business, but we didn't really give them an opening to, to start a, a conversation about an acquisition. So, um, you know, we can talk about kind of why maybe that was, but um, yeah, so it was probably like the third or fourth year of that happening that my business partner and I had decided, you know, after seven years, we were, we had grown this company as, as much as we could and kind of, you know, made it as valuable as we could and it was time to to find an exit. So we reached out to a, a few people, including Hims. And um so in that case, you know, in, in the final case, it was us that started the conversation. That makes sense. Uh, I can I've I've never been through an acquisition, but I can only imagine the amount of work that goes into doing that. Uh, the lunches, I'm sure, are the easy part. It's <laughs> all the financial diligence and everything that comes afterwards. Right. Yeah. Um, it it can be very stressful. Um I was both my business partner and I were um, also having children around the same time. I think my second born was in the midst of finalizing that deal, and my business partner Joe Malley he had his uh, his his first child, his son, about two months after. So we had a lot going on, and uh, yeah, it was you know very exciting time, but you know not a whole lot of sleep and a lot of stress that summer. But then you got it done, so you know. In your opinion, what went right with this acquisition? So, you know, a lot of things, a lot of things went well with the acquisition. I think, you know, if I, and I did, if, you know, if you make a list of potential buyers of Moby Health News, I would put Hims Media at the top of the list. They, as I said, they were the biggest um, health IT publisher, and, and I think they still are the biggest health IT publisher in the market. And, you know, just, it, it made a lot of sense that we would become a part of their portfolio publications. They did have one that competed with us directly. That was a kind of a smaller initiative. So we ended up 
replacing that and kind of melding our our brand with theirs a little bit. But you know, we we really brought I think a ton of um, digital health subscribers and readers to Hims, and the organization at large really saw the space, the digital health space, as kind of the future of health IT. And so we knew that we were kind of helping to set up the wider organization for, um, you know, having a channel into what they saw as, as really the future of their industry. And then, as I said, you know, just benefiting from the resources of a larger publisher, um, the most obvious one to me at the time was really seeing um, the expansion of the footprint and the readership. I think they doubled the number of readers we had within a year, year and a half of the acquisition. And that just speaks to, you know, the resources of a big company like that and, and their ability to to focus on audience development and, and use all the you know lists and other things that they had at their disposal to kind of uh, run nurture campaigns to, to bring more people into the fold but um, yeah I mean it, it's a long list of what went well I think um, it was it was a great fit strategically for hims and I you know I'm very happy that Moby health news still exists it's still thriving and um, it still is the dominant publication for for digital health and if someone were to come along and we'll talk about your new project in a minute but if someone were to come along today and want to buy you know your, your new business out what are things that you learned through this acquisition with hims you know maybe some negatives that you would try to prevent from happening the second time around yeah you know i think this is sort of a more of a macro lesson that would have helped with everything else. But one, one mistake that I personally think I made really from the start of Movie Health News, and again, you know, I was 25 when we started this, so just, just to kind of cut myself a little slack. But I really, um, you know, I was talking to a friend about this earlier in the week, and they said it's almost like I hermetically sealed off me and, and my co-founder just kind of went into this bubble and worked on this publication and worked on this little business really on our own, you know, as we added people, they, they became part of that bubble, but I did not reach out nearly enough, um, to other media operator types or other people that I knew at fierce. Um, many of whom would go on to found really successful companies like industry dive. I worked with the three co-founders of that company when I was at fierce. And then another one in the biopharma space endpoints news. I worked with, um, one or two of those co-founders. So you know, I actually had a really great network, even just within my fierce alumni network that I should have gone to more. And, um, I did that very little, but, you know, just having those conversations and having that type of an advisory board, I think would have helped in, in so many ways. You know, we mentioned kind of leading up to the deal, I had these meetings with a potential acquirer. And if I had had, um, an advisory board around me that had gone through this process and was familiar with it, I think they probably could have helped coach me as, as to how to have that conversation with them earlier and, um, you know, in addition to that, I think there's just so many ways that we could have grown the value of Moby Health News as a business. You know, again, if you look at Fierce or you look at an industry dive, if you're more familiar with them, um, the way to scale a lot of these niche media businesses is to figure out a model that works for a publication and then scale it across different verticals or even different kind of mini verticals within your original vertical, I think would be the way that we probably would have done it at Moby Health News. Um, and that would have required, uh, you know, a larger team and, and many more resources. But I think had I been just better at asking for help and, you know, more secure and jumping on the phone with some of these old colleagues of mine and, and asking for advice, I probably could have figured out 
how to do that. And, um, you know, it, it's definitely a big lesson. I think it's something that I'm trying really hard. And I think so far I've been very successful at, you know, getting on the phone with, with a lot of those people and other people that I've come to know over the years and just, you know, kind of sharing the challenges and, you know, learning, um, in real time, as opposed to trying to figure it out on my own or, or after the fact. Um, yeah, I mean, just a plug for what you're doing too, Jacob, I think things like a media operator that, that didn't exist in 2008 when we started Moby Health News, you know, a lot of the writing about this sort of business was, was at a different level. Um, so I, I had a sense of things, but I didn't, you know, didn't have a, a tactical sense of things. Yeah. I mean, I, the reason I launched a media operator was specifically so that I could learn from people who were smarter, smarter than I was. Um, I'd actually intended on this being a podcast before a newsletter oh, because, wow. you know, the interview is like, I now get some of your time. I believe you're smarter than I am in media. Yeah. And so therefore I get to learn from you on what you've done. Right. So that is, that was the whole idea behind a media operator and it kind of just took off from there. Uh, so I think that that's like for anybody who works in media, find your, find your network of people, uh, because, you know, everyone, like I, I've, after doing this for a year now, I find that a lot of people genuinely just want to see us succeed mm-hmm. and, you know, they will give their time to make that happen. Uh, so I definitely, I definitely agree with that. Uh, having that advisory committee, let's fast forward. So fierce was phase one of your career. Moby was phase two. Now mm-hmm. let's move on. We're now moving to phase three of your career, which is your current project. Tell us a little bit about what you do now, what you're doing, like, you know, why you decided to launch, because it's another, it's another, you know, uh, health play, why you decided to launch this publication and, and why it's different than Moby Health News. Yeah, that's a great question. It's, it's different in a lot of ways. So it is still in digital health, but um, my original concept was more a market research offering. So I, I do have these long form research reports there between 4,000 and 5,000 words. And that, I still kind of think of that as the core value of what Exits and Outcomes provides. But I do have a weekly newsletter as well. And I think what I've learned in, in a year of doing this, that people actually really love the newsletter. And it's, I think, of equal value. Um, for some people, maybe it's of more value. But, um, you know, just something that I, I just kind of, I think, uh, it, it surprises me that that ended up being as, as big a part of what I'm doing as it is. But it's, um, it's different from Moby Health News in that it's, it's not a daily, you know, it's not tracking all of digital health in a comprehensive way. Um, if you were to only read Exits and Outcomes and not read Moby Health News, I think you would uh, probably not know, you know, a lot of what's going on in the industry. So it's really positioned as sort of um, a premium version of Moby Health News that sort of sits, I think it sits well on top of Moby Health News. And so if you're looking for more, if you're looking for additional context and kind of deeper cuts and uh, analysis, as well as market research, I think um, Exits and Outcomes is, is a great addition to your, your weekly read. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, as a product, it's different in a lot of ways. It's, it's, not, um, it's not a straight news industry tracker, you know, based on press releases and, and interviews. It's really uh, the foundation of what I do today and the, and the the writing that I do is really more market research oriented and it's not, um, it's not based on kind of the weekly cycle of announcements from the industry. Um, I don't know how, yeah, I mean, I can, I can talk about the specifics of the content at length, but 
maybe it's not as tactical, but yeah, I guess suffice it to say, like there's, there's so much information about private companies, um, on the internet today that did not exist in 2008. You know, most journalists are not spending their time uh, watching every YouTube video presentation that a company founder that they're writing about has given or listening to every podcast that someone has given. It's, there's so much information out there and these companies are kind of parsing it out in lots of different ways. Um, and so one, one of the things that I have done in my long form research is just in a very comprehensive way, kind of pull together every little insight and data point that a private company shares across the web and pull that into a long form report. So, you know, you learn a lot more about a company than you would if you only followed what was put into their press releases over the past couple of years. And would you say that your clients or your readers are executives at other, you know, digital health companies, more on the investor side, a blend of both? Yeah, it's a blend. I would say it's probably primarily three um, groups in my audience today. Um, you know, and I, I should say that another way that I'm different from Moby Health News is I'm a little bit more focused, and this is kind of an initial thing. I'm going to broaden it out a little bit, but I'm really focused more on the pharmaceutical side of digital health. So um, I write about startups that are creating digital health products that are, are basically either prescribed as if they were pharmaceutical products or they are prescribed along with pharmaceutical products as sort of a digital adjunct to them. So they help you know, increase the the positive patient outcomes of, of a drug, or, you know, it's some kind of a behavioral therapy that can actually produce their own positive patient outcomes. They can help you manage your symptoms. And, and that's proven through the same way that a pharmaceutical product has been proven, you know, with randomized trials and, and whatnot. And um, so anyway, given that I'm kind of a smaller niche, my audience today is really a mix of digital teams at large pharmaceutical companies. Um, investors, so VCs that are really investing in these these startups or or hope to, and then the startups themselves. And, you know, I think across the board, it, it is a very, um, it's a C-level audience. You know, it's mostly the founders of those startups and kind of their strategy leads or their commercial officers, kind of those three. And then within the pharma groups, as I said, it's really their digital teams. So there's kind of a mix there. Um, yeah, I think those three are kind of the key. And then if, you know, there are a number of large tech firms, the kind of the biggest companies in the world that are really interested in digital health. And they also, I think many of them take a similar approach and kind of looking at some of their products anyway, as being these digital therapeutics. So um, I have a number of those companies on as well. And, you know, for all these larger companies and pharma companies, most of them are subscribing as uh, enterprise subscribers. So they have the ability to make um, the site and the newsletter available to their entire company. That's an interesting model. It's a model I've thought a lot about, uh, and I think it's a model that Endpoints News also takes, where mm -hmm. effectively you you effectively provide a single license, and then everybody at the company gains access, right? right? And so, do you believe that that has given you more revenue than you would otherwise get from these companies, or do you think that it kind of handicaps the amount that you can grow because you're effectively giving if a company's got a thousand people, you're giving a thousand people access to content for, you know, a relatively small per user price. You know, it's a great question. I mean, it really depends on the company. So, you know, I'd say for the ones that have uh, purchased that sort of subscription, for the most part, they are companies that, um, you know, 
few of their employees are actually focused on this this digital piece. So you know, in the instance of pharmaceutical company, obviously the vast vast majority of that company is not interested in reading exits and outcomes, but they do have a team that's focused on digital health, and you know, I'm I'm happy to have that entire team reading the publication. I mean, I have found that it's you know, it ends up being not it's not like a thousand people end up signing up. It's, you know, it's more like, I think at the most dozens of people end up and, and that, you know, that's kind of a function of my industry and sort of how big a team is that's focused on this at a larger company. But, um, no, I, I think it's great. And, you know, I think just enabling someone who's sort of in a, a management role to make the decision that their team should be reading this, I think is, um, especially these, these early days of a company, it's, it's a really, it's a great thing. You know, it, it helps, I think, um, increase the larger subscribership because um, it becomes just a part of their culture. It's something that hopefully most of them are reading on a weekly basis. And, you know, now that they all have access, they can all talk about it. And, you know, my two biggest, this shouldn't be a surprise, but my two biggest sources of new paying subscribers, uh, number one is, is word of mouth, you know, forwarding the newsletter. Um, it's it's just purely my current subscribers reaching out to to colleagues and getting them to subscribe, and then number two is um, you know via social media. So I just think um, in these early days, like getting as many paying subscribers as I can, if that includes an enterprise deal, I, I think that's uh, it's a great way to grow. And you know it, it could change. Maybe this is something I just do for now, but um, I think it's a good model. You know, maybe one other point you mentioned endpoints. I think what's really interesting about their model is, I, I believe, I shouldn't speak for them, but I believe that even though they have the enterprise package, um, they're also selling, they're still selling marketing products around that. So there is some level of um, advertising or sponsorship um, in the product that's sponsored, or that's not, that's, uh, that's premium, that's paid for. So, you know, that's an opportunity too. I think just if you can sort of get an entire digital team at a big company that a lot of other companies are trying to reach down the road, maybe that's a you know, a good way to kind of create the right bundle of readers for a really targeted um, marketing product. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a lot of thoughts about that, and I want to, I want to come back to that. But as we think about, you know, again, a media operator, two hundred dollars a year. Uh, I do group subscriptions. I've sold a couple of those. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do you think? Like when you started this, what was your strategy on coming up with the price? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll admit, not not super sophisticated. I really just looked at comps. You know, I think everyone's go-to, especially you know a year ago, um, is uh, Stratechery, Ben Thompson, uh, and his is a hundred a year. So I kind of started with that, and you know, I I see what he's doing as far less niche than what I'm doing. So for starters, I think there's something a little bit more focused and exclusive about the content I'd be providing. It'd be a smaller audience and. Et cetera, et cetera. But then just looking at other, maybe more um, other comps that are a little closer to what I'm doing, you know, uh, the Timmerman report was a big one. I think his price point is a little bit higher than mine. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I just kind of rounded up three or four of those and sort of looked for a spot in the middle that made sense. And, you know, I have to say, like, it's been, it's been a year. I have had one single complaint from a potential subscriber, like someone who I actually thought was going to subscribe. And it may be the only one. Um, wondering why I cost more than Stratechery. And they, they even specifically referenced that. Um, but in every other case, the only time this comes up in a discussion, most people wonder why I'm not charging more. And so I'm okay with that. Like I understand 
there's a good chance I'm leaving money on the table and I'm not opposed to raising the prices at some point. But if this is where I'm at, where for the most part, people are finding a lot of value when I'm doing, they're willing to pay it um, and I can make it work on my end, then I think it's a good place to start. And you know, I'm hoping to continue to add value. And I think there, there could come a time before long where I decide it, it makes sense to, to raise the price. Yeah, I when I decided to go paid with a media operator, I was originally going to charge $100 a year. And then mm-hmm. literally the last minute, I just put a two in front of the one. Uh, <laughs> and just and it was there was no thought whatsoever other than there's not that much difference between $100 mm-hmm. and $200. Right. And if, if I can provide one useful piece of like tactical or strategic knowledge to somebody, it's worth the $200. That's right. Um, so yeah, I, uh, but I have, I have also received that comment that people feel I don't charge enough, but you know, it's, there's a balance, right? I would rather have, you know, a decent number of media operators have access to the content than only the most successful that can afford it. Right. And I kind of, you know, it's trying to find that balance. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a great, I mean, it kind of gets down to like an ethical, philosophical kind of way of viewing your business. I mean, I think another way that I, I've seen it uh, posed is it's it's easier to serve a smaller group. So if you find a price point that works for your business, but it's on the, the higher end and it makes it a much smaller group, that group may have more in common with each other and it may be easier to really serve them at a, you know, even more, in an even more valuable way. And so, I, you know, I kind of see the logic in that too, but I think if, and this isn't true for everybody. If if what you're doing has sort of a journalistic backbone to it, then you, you know, some kind of a scale and, and reaching a larger audience is typically a part of that. Um, and that's certainly true for what I'm doing. You know, I'm hoping to have a larger audience as you know, increasingly larger audience as time goes on. I don't think my strategy will be to to shrink it at at a higher price point. No, I uh, I agree with that. So you know, I I put out two pieces a week. One free on Tuesdays, one paid on Fridays. Mm. You're a hundred percent paid, as far as I could tell. Yeah. How? I mean, you mentioned before word of mouth, social media, but do you struggle with audience development when all of your content is behind a paywall? That's a yeah. I mean, that's a great question. You know, I think um, there's a few reasons that I, I do it the way that I do. I think you know anyone in this position is going to feel like they could be growing faster, uh, especially because it's all behind the paywall. But I think one way to think about the position that I'm in is I, I had a very large audience that for many of the years I was at Moby Health News were reading what I was writing. You know, I was the main writer up until the last probably two years that I was there prior to the acquisition. So, you know, my name was very strongly associated with the brand. And, you know, a lot of people still think of me as sort of the original digital health reporter. So, there's sort of this audience that I, you know, I no longer have the assets that Moby Health News had. Obviously, I can't um, use an actual list, but you know, they. I, I kind of think of it almost like a nurture campaign of I'm trying to reconnect with a portion of my old audience. Um, I'm not creating an audience from scratch, in the same as someone would be if they were, you know, creating a new media business in a, in a new niche or a new industry. And so I think because of that, I have some something of an established reputation among my potential subscribers, and it's really just making it clear to them that what I'm doing is different. It is, you know, it is more premium. It is deeper. Um, and as you say, you know, it's it's not something they're going to see somewhere else. Like every issue of Exits and Outcomes has, I think, a number of sort of mini scoops and surprises that, you know, whether it's an acquisition that was kind of hidden for you know six months from a big company, or, um, you know. 
I, I get some signal that shows a company's working on a particular product and I can share that. I mean, there's lots of little things that, you know, a typical media company isn't, isn't tracking that I put in there. And it's really, I think it's, it's kind of the difference between keeping up and getting ahead. You know, that's, that's one way that I think of it is like Moby Health News will absolutely help you keep up. You're going to be on the same page as everyone else in the industry. And what I'm trying to do with exits and outcomes is for those paying subscribers, they're going to be a couple of weeks or a couple of months ahead of everyone else. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a little bit different, I think, because I have this um, sort of latent audience that I'm, I'm trying to sort of reconnect with. And I would say, as I mentioned before, there's kind of two ways that, um, two obvious ways that I'm doing that. And that's social media. Like I still have my personal Twitter account that wasn't part of the acquisition. So um, that's been a really great source of reconnecting with old readers. And then LinkedIn as well. It's uh, it's a smaller number there, but you know, I think as many people have kind of experienced, LinkedIn's a pretty great source for media companies today. And um, you know, I, I do find a, a fair number of paying subscribers are coming from posts or other people's posts about E&O there. Um, but you know, I take your point. I mean, I'm not ruling out launching some kind of a free version of Exits and Outcomes in the future. But I think for now, I I'm still growing quick enough that this strategy is working, and I think the uh, you know because I'm a one person operation, I think every minute that I can put into increasing value and keeping up the quality of um, the newsletter that I'm. I'm offering only to paying subscribers. I think that's really still priority number one. And, you know, I'm, I'm carving off uh, a small amount of time to kind of figure the rest out. But, but yeah, I would say, you know, 95% of my day is really focused on, on the product and on serving those paying subscribers that I have. No, that makes sense. Are you willing to share how many subscribers you have? Uh, it's a little early. I, yeah. I'm not ready to share numbers. I think, um, it's still early days, but, um, you know, I'm happy with the growth. I think my expectations were pretty, pretty open-ended just cause I hadn't done this sort of thing before. I hadn't, you know, had a subscriber only product. So, um, I'm starting to kind of, now that it's been a year, I have a better sense of what, what growth could look like and should look like. So, um, you know, probably more willing to talk numbers in year two, but yeah, I think for now, uh, I'm going to keep that quiet. Yeah, we'll come back to that in year two. Uh, but so speaking of the first year, because, you know, I've got some I've got a couple other people I've talked to who, you know, their subscription products hit that one year mark and it's my one year paid mark will be in January. I can only imagine there's, there's, there's gotta be a little bit of stress that kind of starts to build up as you get closer and closer to that, because you're coming up to that point of renewal. Right. Uh, what was, you know, what was that process like? Did you see a lot of churn and knowing that, you know, churn is a natural, you know, phenomenon in, in, in media. Did you deploy any sort of tactics that would help reduce that churn? I have not deployed any tactics to reduce churn specifically. Um, I think one thing that, again, may be different from others' experience, you know, when I, when I launched this, it was in May 2019, and I launched with one of these long-form reports. And it was, um, really, it was an attempt to more or less write a summary of what an S1 document would look like for a big name company in my space that was about to go public. So this is before they filed for their IPO. And I just sort of pieced together different sources of information about the company and, and put this research report together. And so I launched with that 
you know, knowing that it would be of interest to a lot of people in, in digital health and, and it was, so that was it. You know, I didn't, I didn't make an announcement. I didn't send out a, you know, here's what I'm doing now update to my, to all of my contacts. I really, it was soft launched on the strength of that report is really a content marketing type play. And so as a result of that, you know, they, they kind of trickled in, it, it did get around. And I think people in that space, it was a diabetes focused company primarily. So and I started to see that company, their competitors, their investors, and, you know, others like them start subscribing. Um, so anyway, just, just to make the point, it's, it's now end of July, we're talking, um, those first couple of months, that's all, I only have data on the churn rate for the people that signed up between, you know, really end of May and, and end of July now. And it's, you know, again, I don't want to get into, this isn't that helpful because I'm not going to talk about the denominator, but I've only had three people um, fail to renew. And I, you know, it's a small enough number that I can look into exactly who those people are and what happened. And, you know, I think of the three, I think two of them left the industry and one of them may have retired. And so like, it's pretty easy to rationalize that it, at least in those three cases, it probably wasn't because of the quality of, of anything that they were sent in the past year. Um, and I think in the final case, the one other person, they clearly signed up to read this report, you know, and I think that kind of gets back to my pricing being low. If you read a, a report like that, um, it may be worth $200 to just sign up just to read that one long form report. There, there is a small contingent of people that that's true for. And so when I, you know, start to see, I think, more meaningful and, and actual realistic numbers around my churn rate, probably in the next, you know, four or five months. That's something I'm going to keep in mind is just, well, you know, what are the chances, and I'll probably try to reach out to some of them, but what are the chances that this person didn't renew because they, they just signed up to read, you know, one of the initial market research reports that I, I put out. So it, it kind of convolutes, I think, um, what the data is really telling me because my, my mix of products, you know, it's not, it's not the same as just a straight paid newsletter subscription. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. I get an email every time someone churns and it is, uh, it's a painful exercise to, to, to see that. But at the same time, you know, it, it's to be expected, right? you know, yep. you know, whether I dive too deep into niche or I sometimes talk a little broader, maybe people don't want to pay, you know, it's, it's fine. I've also found actually, and this is an interesting thing that you haven't, I'm sure, because mm -hmm. I offer a monthly subscription. Mm -hmm. So I have found that people will sign up to read everything and then just unsubscribe immediately afterwards. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, that is, that is also an interesting uh, thing. I've thought a lot about just going yearly to kind of prevent against that. Um, yeah. That's one reason I don't offer the monthly. I, you know, I think if I had, if I was just a newsletter, I may, I'd be more likely to offer that as an option. But I think because now if you sign up, you get, you know, 10 or 11 long form research reports as well as, um, I guess there's one database that I have behind a paywall. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with 2PM. Um, one of the great features on that publication that I, that I love are these embedded, it's almost, I think they use Airtable now. They used to use a WordPress plugin called um, TablePress. And that's what I use. But it's almost like an embedded Airtable on the site. It's kind of like a mini database. And they have all these different ones. And it's, it's more or less a list, but you can search it and sort it. And so I've started putting those together too. And I think my subscribers seem to, to really like those and um, I'm going to do more of those as well. But anyway, you know, if you could sign up for one month and you get all of that research and those databases, it just seems like um, it doesn't seem worth it to me to offer that. If, uh, you know, for, for $200, I think 
getting access to that is a pretty sweet deal, even if you're just wanting to read it one time. Yeah, no, for sure. I've I've thought about doing you know similar sorts of deep databases into niche media companies and trying to figure out you know what their revenue is, their employee size, all of that. Great. Yeah. But I, 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 I'd have to change my pricing model. I, you know, mm-hmm. to do one of those is, is, it's. I haven't done one yet, but I'm sure it's months of work. And for someone to gain access to that for twenty bucks, just that just doesn't feel right to me. Right. Um, so you mentioned you mentioned uh, my last question really about the tactical stuff, and then I want to kind of go, you know, future looking. Okay. I mentioned that you're built with WordPress. You mm-hmm. know, you and I launched in a similar time. You opted to go with custom build. I went with Substack. What was your rationale? And I guess this might be because you were not a, you know, the newsletter wasn't the first point, mm-hmm. but you know, how did you build your business? You know, how did you build the, the actual site? Did you do it? You hire somebody? Like, what does your stack look like? And then the final question is how much time do you spend handling the technical side of things versus being able to focus on just the content? Great. Yeah, no, all, all good questions. Um, yeah. I mean, I love Substack. You know, I love that they built a platform. Um, I know you've kind of had this debate: Are they a tech company? Are they a media company? I mean, I kind of think of them as more of a tech company as a platform for journalists and other writers. And you know, there's just so few companies that have have done that in a way that's sustainable. And I think Substack is doing well, and I think is going to be a sustainable business. So it's just exciting to see that there's attention being paid to to journalism from that sort of company. Um, and it's a very good thing for media, but, you know, for me, um, you know, honestly, they, they kind of just lost me at the 10% revenue fee and it, the numbers just didn't make sense to me. I think if you're going to get to a certain size and you expect to, um, it is less expensive to just hire even a somewhat expensive shop to, to build you a site. Um, so it's kind of as simple as that, but also just, long-standing policy um, based on some advice I guess I got long ago was it's probably it's not typically a good idea to tie your fortunes as as an upstart to another startup you know Substack I think it'd been around for a little while when I launched in May 2019 but they didn't have anywhere near the momentum they have today I think it was probably just starting to develop around the time that I launched so I was already well into building exits and outcomes um so yeah, to your other question, I did hire a a great design and developer firm to build it called Electric Pulp, and it's a, a company that I bookmarked many years ago. Um, they were actually the same firm that designed the initial build of Skift. You mentioned Rafat Ali. Um, you know, I think like everybody, I'm a big fan of his. I used to read his paid content newsletter and site back in the day. So um, just the fact that he chose them, I think, was a really big signal to me that they were probably worth looking at. And then, you know, I talked to a few others, but I really loved their pitch and they were a great group to work with. And, you know, I continue to work with them. So they, for now, anyway, they, they host my site. So they built it on WordPress, as you mentioned. Um, and the rest of the stack is, it's very similar to, it may be exactly the same as Trutechery. Um, it's WordPress, Memberful, MailChimp are the kind of the key pieces. And as I said, you know, they're hosting it. So, um, that's probably the the key pieces of the stack anyway. And then, you know, in terms of time, it's, it's not a whole lot. It's um, I'd say I spend, as I said, maybe 5% or less of my time on things not related to developing, you know, the market research and, and the newsletter itself, the content. 
Um, I heard this from Ben Thompson in his early years. You know, one thing that can add up is sort of the um, customer service elements of just dealing with, you know, someone's account not working or trying to add a new team member to their enterprise uh, subscription and, and that sort of thing. And I, I find um, memberful, especially their customer service is great. So um, if I can't find it in their help documents, they can typically help me really quickly. So probably more than dealing with, you know, any kind of technical issues with the site, it's really more about kind of the customer service issues related to memberships. And um, at the same time, you know, I think Memberful has evolved. Like they, they've added these team subscription options since I've launched, probably halfway through six months ago. They probably offered that up and it's made it a lot easier. It's a little bit uh, more hands-off for me. I used to do all that manually. If someone wanted to add a team member, I had to do it myself on the back end. And now Memberful makes it so you can just, you know, empower somebody on that subscription to be the manager of their team. You tell them how many seats they get and they can just swap in and swap out new colleagues as, as they see fit, um, you know, within the, the maximum that you set. So it's great. And that has worked, I think, in almost all cases. There's a, there's a few customers that would rather I do it. And I'm happy to, you know, I'm not forcing anybody to, I think, um, to a certain extent, I'm, I'm able to, uh, kind of provide some, some white glove service if, if need be. And, um, so far so good on that front, you know, as, as things get even bigger, maybe that gets harder, but, um, for now it's, it's manageable. So speaking about exits and outcomes getting bigger, you know, how do you, where do you see the business in three years? Do you, do you think it's still a subscription business? You know, do you, do you start to maybe copy a little bit of what endpoints has done and start introducing some marketing components to it? Uh, you mentioned before niches within niches, you know, so three years from now, when we do our third or fourth interview and you tell me that you've got, you know, you know, tens of thousands of paying subscribers, what, um, what do you, what do you envision it looking like? Right. You know, I, I see a couple of ways to go. I think there's, I haven't made a, a set decision on any of them. And, and in all honesty, like part of that is just, you know, we're in the midst of this pandemic, what's going to happen with the coming school year. I have two little kids, one just starting kindergarten, one going to first grade. And, and that, it, that does have an impact on how ambitious I want to be as a one person team for this coming year. So I'm keeping an eye on that. And I think in the next few weeks, my school district for my kids is a little bit, I think, behind the the ball in giving us a plan. So um, that may, yeah, that may dictate kind of how much time I'm able to put in addition to the time I'm already putting in. Um, so anyway, this is just kind of spitballing, but you know, I think the big swing would be um, taking inspiration from Fierce and Industry Dive and kind of looking at this model that I've been creating for digital health with a, a paid newsletter and some market research and considering doing the same thing for you know a handful of other verticals outside of digital health. And that would absolutely require more people and a different set of resources. But I do think that a lot of what I'm doing um, has created a competitive advantage, at least in terms of the content itself. And, um, you know, I, I hear from my readers and subscribers, and I, I just kind of know, because I know the digital health media space pretty well, that um, no one's really coming up with the insights that I have. And I think the way that I'm doing it could be used to do the same thing in other industries. So that would be really fun. I think it's, um, I'm not sure that that's the direction I'm leaning in. I think the more likely course 
is, uh, as you mentioned, kind of finding more niches within digital health. And, and as I said, I'm not serving all of digital health right now. So I think um, there's two pretty obvious things that I can add to really serve most people working in digital health today across the board. And it's a big industry. I mean, healthcare is huge. Um, so if you're kind of taking on the digital layer of digital transformation of all of healthcare, I mean, there's, there's a lot of potential readers there. Um, that's a more likely way to go. And um, I think it's possible that I could do that still as a, a solopreneur, you know, on my own, um, depending on how much I built that out. But I, I do think there's room to kind of have, you know, not just one weekly newsletter, but maybe, maybe there's three weekly newsletters. And the idea would be you could pick and choose. Maybe you're happy with the way things are. You're, you're very pharma focused. You're going to stick with just what I'm offering today. Maybe you've got an interest in some of these other verticals that I'm thinking about and you want to go two out of three or three out of three. And that would all be inclusive in your 200 annual price. So it'd really be um, about growing the pot, not, you know, not adding new, new revenue streams. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. It's you know you start to the the buzzword of the past couple of months has been bundle, but you effectively yeah. you know the bundle is both a an offensive play to try to add new subscribers, but it's also a defensive play mm-hmm. where you use it as a way to ensure people don't unsubscribe. You know, so if you suddenly double the high quality insights that they get, they are less likely to ultimately unsubscribe, which you know. We the, the whole game is keeping your current subscribers and then adding new ones. If you've got to constantly get new subscribers, it's hard to grow. That's right. So, all right. So we have gone, so this is the first episode I've ever done with this podcast. So I really appreciate you kind of hopping on, on board doing this. Uh, I think it went absolutely flawlessly. Um, but I do have one final question. Okay. Because what, one of my hopes with this podcast and with, you know, with, with the media operator overall is that uh, people start to look at these niche media companies as really good opportunities to get into the media business. You know, not everything has to be a mass media scale play. And honestly, most things shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the past decade is full of companies that thought they could build, you know, the New York Times with venture capital, and it, it, it has clearly failed. If you know, if someone were thinking about launching their own publication today, and you've done it twice now, mm. what's some advice that you would share with them to kind of set them up to be most successful? Yeah, that's a great final question. I mean, I have a few things. I think the, the first top of mind piece of advice is you can't be joining a similar company to the one that you want to found as a primary step, you know, I think my almost three years at Fierce Markets were invaluable to everything I've done since, um, especially because that company was so small. I really, I got to know the sales team, the marketing team, the events team. I helped each of those functions within the company in some way on the editorial side. And you really get a sense of how all those pieces fit together. Um, so, you know, if, you, if you're more interested in the subscription side, you know, join a successful but small media startup that's doing that if you can. Um, I would absolutely do that first. You know, I think that starting completely from scratch is is very difficult. Um, people do it; some will succeed, but you're gonna it's gonna, you're gonna find um, not only a great network that you should take advantage after doing that, but you know, just so much experience uh, is gained in those small company settings. Um, that's absolutely number one. I think, you know, number two, like I have had 
probably about a half a dozen conversations with people that are trying to start um, companies. A lot of them, most of them are Substack uh, endeavors. And you know, the thing that has stood out for me among probably about half the people I've spoken to is that they don't have uh, a background in journalism. And, you know, there's, so I take for granted a lot of that. You know, I, I did, didn't study journalism in school, but I took enough classes that I, I almost did. And um, I did have some internships. So, you know, I, I had that experience before I started Fierce. But it, it's kind of, um, it's surprising, I guess. It shouldn't be, but it's surprising to sort of hear what some of those insecurities are among people that, you know, have never done this kind of work before. So if you're the one that's trying to write and you're doing something that's more of a journalistic type substack or newsletter, and, you know, not just uh, an analytical one where you can kind of just sit back in your armchair and, and think and write, which is great. If you can do that, I think that's a great way to go these days. But you know, if you're trying to talk to people and you're trying to figure out what's going on in an industry, there's a skill set there and you need to develop it. And um, you, you may be able to do that on your own, but you can't be afraid to get on the phone with people. You can't be afraid to talk to as many people in that industry that you're trying to write about as you can. And um, I have found um, in, in most cases, if someone doesn't have a journalism background, they, they seem to be afraid of that initial step of just trying to get people on the phone to, to talk to them because, you know. That's a scary thing if that hasn't been a part of your your professional life uh, to date. So those two things are key. I mean, just think about your skill set and, and make sure if you're trying to be a journalist, you have some experience there. And then more on the business side, it, it really helps to join a company that has had some success in, in the model that you're thinking about pursuing. Um, and you'll be surprised how much you can learn if, if it's a small enough company. And um, again, you know, I still think back to some of those early years and you know make adjustments just based on, you know, things that I'm not doing right today and that I'm like, oh, that's the way they used to do it. Maybe I should think about that. And it, um, it really does pay dividends for, for probably, you know, the rest of my career. I think it will. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe and give it a five-star rating with your thoughts. If you want even more, sign up for the newsletter at amediaoperator.com. Each Tuesday, I analyze the latest media news. And on Fridays, I do deep dives into specific strategic and tactical topics about building media businesses. Thanks for listening and see you next week.